Welcome to Mind the Gaps, a women, peace and security podcast. On this podcast, we explore the world of women, peace and security, or WPS, through speaking to experts and practitioners from around the world, working under the umbrella of WPS. My name is Eva Tabassum, and I'm the Director of Gender Action for Peace and Security, also known as GAPS. Join us as we release a new episode bi-weekly focusing on another important aspect of the WPS agenda, where I will be speaking to some brilliant guests who will share their takes and recommendations on this important topic. Hello, we're so excited to share our first episode with you today as we launch Mind the Gaps, a women, peace and security podcast. Our first episode will be an introduction to women, peace and security, national action plans, or NAPS, and looking at the future of the UK's Women, Peace and Security policy in the context of the launch of their new National Action Plan. Before we dive into things, I'm thrilled to introduce our first guest to the Mind the Gaps podcast. Today, I will be speaking with Dr. Paul Kirby and Dr. Hannah Wright, both in the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London. Hannah and Paul are here to help us to introduce the WPS agenda and the National Action Plans as well as talk about their paper, The Future of the UK's Women, Peace and Security Policy, which they co-wrote with Ashling Swain and was published by the LSE Centre for Women, Peace and Security. More on that later. So what is Women, Peace and Security? The landmark UN Security Council Resolution 1325 was adopted in October in the year 2000 and formally established the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. The WPS Agenda is an essential framework to peace building, conflict prevention and conflict resolution. The history of Women, Peace and Security extends well before this date and is shaped by a multitude of diverse actors, with its roots founded in women's civil society movements. Despite foundational work being undertaken by conflict-affected women and women-led organisations across the Global South, the origin story of Women, Peace and Security often starts at the 1915 International Congress of Women, where women and girls affected by World War I advocated to the international community for a complete disarmament and a commitment to women and girls' rights. International advocacy, as well as connected work across multiple national and regional movements undertaken by women's organisations and women human rights defenders working in conflict-affected contexts, led to the passing of UN Security Council Resolution 1325, the first of the Women, Peace and Security Resolutions, and a subsequent nine resolutions which make up the policy architecture of the WPS framework. impact of conflict on women and girls is increasingly recognised through global commitments from CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, to the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Women, Peace and Security intersects with peace building, development and humanitarian issues. There has also been a move in recent years for the Women, Peace and Security Agenda to take a gendered perspective an intersectional approach to understanding the gendered norms and structures that both drive and shape conflict and instability, such as masculinities, as well as shape individuals' experiences of it. This approach provides an opportunity to explore how things such as sexual orientation, gender identity and expression shape conflict dynamics and experiences. 
Unfortunately, progress on implementing the agenda has been slow and uneven. Gaps have long advocated that for the Women, Peace and Security agenda to progress, it must be dynamic, ambitious, flexible and implemented holistically to make the connections to other intersecting issues such as climate change and the environment, anti-militarism and race. I want to now bring on our guests, Hannah and Paul. I would like to ask you both how you would describe the Women, Peace and Security agenda in no more than a few sentences. Is it a policy agenda? Architecture? Is it a movement, an advocacy tool? All of the above and more? Paul, over to you. Thanks, Eva. Well, as you intimated there, there are so many different ways that you can dissect it. I think there are at least three kinds of visions of WPS that are at play, one of which is as a radical feminist peace project, another which is a kind of liberal governance uh, agenda that fits very much in the liberal international order, as we sometimes say, and then third as this co-opted, securitized, potentially colonial facade. All of that is at play at different points, and I think is further complicated both by the proliferation of themes that we've seen in recent years. So everything from cybersecurity through climate change, through refugee and asylum policy, through sexual and reproductive rights, intersects with WPS in some way, and the geographical spread. So through institutions like NATO into East Asia, growing use of WPS in African security spaces, and so on. So I tend to think of WPS not as a single set of provisions or as a unified agenda, but as a kind of field of contention where different actors, different movements are really doing quite different things under the same label, under the same umbrella. And then it's about how you disentangle that and diagnose that within this common frame. Um, but it's not, it's not one thing, sadly. Hannah any thoughts on that yeah I mean I agree with all of that and I think it can be all of the things that you mentioned Eva it can be a policy agenda it can be a policy architecture a movement an advocacy tool but following on from what Paul said I would similarly hesitate to think of women peace and security as a singular political project and I think it's fair to say that the vision of women, peace and security that the UK government is implementing, for example, is a very different one from the kind of radical anti-militarist feminist peace project that Paul described um, and that you kind of alluded to in your introduction as well. Um, and that's not just about implementation being partial or being slow, but about different and sometimes totally incommensurable visions of what the agenda actually is and what it's for. So I think that that tension has been really evident in the history of the engagement among civil society organisations who might have different ideas, but also between civil society and the government around WPS. Definitely. Um, I think for GAPS, we can probably speak of that tension. We try to honour the inception roots of WPS, thinking about it from an anti-militaristic um, perspective and thinking about its pacifist roots. And then sometimes you'll come up with uh, a civil society partner who has a completely different vision, um, which can often make it quite difficult when you're trying to, as a civil society network, coordinate our asks around women, peace and security, especially to the UK government. So... Then moving on to implementation mechanisms for the Women, Peace and Security Agenda. So one of those implementation mechanisms is the National Action Plan. 
or NAPs, um, they're developed by states and they set out their priorities and commitments under different aspects of the agenda. There's no set outline for what a NAP should look like and they vary from country to country. Uh, many provide information on how women, peace and security activities of the state are understood, governed, funded, funded and monitored. And also what we see is with NAPs that Western states seem to be very outward looking. South based uh, countries are inward looking and there's that tension. So, Paul, could you tell us some of the challenges and benefits of national action plans? Well, I think the promise of national action plans was and maybe still is that governments have the most potential power to realize those ambitions um, of the agenda as you've as you've set them out the pillars and so on i mean it's governments that are the parties to something like cedor the conveners of peace talks very often uh, the militaries engaged in particular conflicts the governments are a significant funder of civil society um, groups the licensor for arms exports and so on so when the Security Council first asked for NAPs back in 2006, I think that was the intention to make the agenda more concrete, more realizable. Um, you know, Security Council resolutions get a lot of attention and are very carefully negotiated texts that we treat as the kind of canonical statement of what WPS is, but they're also highly general. And most of them are in chapter six language, as we say in UN terminology, which means that the phrases are about urging, requesting, encouraging states, um, and so on. Whereas the kind of impacts a NAP um, can have and can generate are much more targeted and context-specific. So if you look at, for example, the most recent Irish National Action Plan, there are about 20 pages of outputs listed at the end, covering all the pillars, each with a specific target, a metric, a timetable, a lead organization, and so on. So if you like, that's the more sort of policy nerd dimension of WPS, right? This idea that we have a process of development around best practice, most effective measures on a range of WPS issues, whether those are originated by civil society groups, experts, leading states, or whoever, and that those kind of diffuse throughout the ecosystem of the agenda so that everybody is moving in a broadly progressive agenda uh, direction towards the realization of the agenda. And that model has been very successful in some senses, right? There are over 100 states now um, with NAPs, and several of those are on their second, third, fourth iteration, uh, fifth in the case of the UK, as we'll, as we'll come back to. But the challenges are very much around that variation that you've mentioned. So one aspect of that, I think, is what we could call a la carte WPS, which is that governments pick and choose which bits of the agenda they like and the bits they don't like they leave to one side. So you haven't got that coherence that I think was intimated or suggested by 1325, the, the original uh, resolution, or by the broader movement that, that created it. Second, inevitably, these are the diplomatic and foreign policy documents of national states. And even in the best case, are therefore going to reflect to some degree that partial interest and there's an argument that the documents that come out of the UN system or through transnational um, social movements have a less uh, parochial understanding of what feminist peace uh, is about that can involve innovation which is both a blessing and a curse depending on which 
the theme of WPS you're looking at. So if you take something like um, countering violent extremism, which has become very controversial in WPS space, if you unpick the kind of policy history of that, actually countering violent extremism appears much earlier in national and regional policy documents than it does at the Security Council. So although we sometimes think of the Security Council as setting the big picture and then states sort of do that at a more concrete level, states can also create new aspects and wings of WPS uh, in ways which might frustrate or cut against what other people think of or what other groups think of as, as WPS um, proper. So you have NAPs kind of fall between, this, on the one hand, this idea of quite a technical policy document which can be copied or transferred for best practice and actually on the other end of the spectrum a much more politicized kind of statement of foreign policy identity where really you're seeing a kind of western way of WPS or an African form of WPS or a securitized form of WPS and so on and NAPs give voice to those different perspectives those different articulations of what the agenda is. That's um <clears throat> A really interesting point at the end because we saw specifically around preventing and countering violent extremism so we at the time I think it must have been about five years ago we saw south-based uh, countries when they were developing their NAPs specifically if they were funded by global north countries so either the UK or uh, Sweden or, or so on we saw preventing and countering violent extremism appear in their final version but when we were doing consultations with the respective women's rights organisations in said country, that wasn't necessarily a theme or top topic that came up as a, identified as like a need or a priority that needed to be addressed. So we also see uh, global north actors who are funding different national action plans, whether that's in Africa or the MENA region, um, also bringing their agenda and, and putting that in national action plans. So definitely very much so. Um, have seen that play out um, which again it's worrying and it's not you know it's not the true for us what women peace and security national action plans are supposed to be doing you spoke about the uk and the uk has had four national action plans and the most recent has just ended last year and we're looking for the new NAP, the fifth NAP, to be launched this week. But before we turn to thinking about this new NAP, um, it'd be useful to take this opportunity to look back at the UK's work on women, peace and security. And Hannah and Paul, um, if you can speak to us a bit about your paper that you launched or you published, sorry, last year with Ashling Swain. Um, big up Ashling Swain. She uh, taught me everything I need to know about women, peace and security. Um, it was called The Future of the UK's Women, Peace and Security Policy. Um, and this was published by the LSE Centre for Women, Peace and Security, and it essentially evaluates the UK's contribution to the WPS agenda over the last 15 years. It addresses strengths and limitations. It analyses successive thematic priorities, maps women, peace and security spending, and considers common criticism. It also draws out recommendations for future plans on infrastructure and monitoring, as well as domestic applications and policy ambition. Hannah, could you start by giving us a brief history of the UK's approach to women, peace and security and its role globally in WPS? 
Yeah, so um, the UK is the pen holder for women and peace and security at the UN Security Council, which is jargon for saying that when a resolution on women, peace and security comes before the council, the UK mission leads on negotiating and drafting the text of that resolution and on incorporating the inputs of member states and civil society advocates. So because of this role... Um, as a member of the Permanent Five, um, members of the Security Council, the UK has kind of conceived of itself of, as a global leader on women, peace and security. Um, and the UK was, I believe, the second country to issue a national action plan. I think I've heard that's contested. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first, its first one was in 2006 and it's about to publish its fifth NAP. So obviously there's a long history there. Um, And probably the most well-known bit of UK women, peace and security activity was the Preventing Sexual Violence in Conflict Initiative, or PSVI, um, which was launched in 2012 by William Hague when he was the Foreign Secretary, along with Angelina Jolie in her former role as the Special Envoy for the UN Refugee Agency. So they hosted a global summit in London in 2014, which was pushing for international commitments on ending impunity for conflict-related sexual violence. And then another smaller conference again last year. So the UK's global role has been really quite focused on this specific issue of conflict-related sexual violence. And that includes things like producing an international protocol for the investigation and documentation of sexual violence in conflict, Um, funding and research on what works to prevent violence against women and girls. Um, So that's really what the UK is kind of known for globally in relation to women, peace and security. It does have um, other areas of work. So we can think about them. They recently set up the um, Women Mediators Across the Commonwealth Network, which is more focused on women's participation. But it's really this issue of conflict related sexual violence where we've seen the most UK activity. Thanks, Hannah. And in your report, you discuss a set of recommendations for the UK's fifth NAP and their approach to WPS more broadly. Can you tell us about these recommendations and your hopes for their integration in the NAP and its implementation? Well, one of the things that we pushed in the report was even though we've said that the UK government has been quite a proliferator of WPS activity and has spent really vast sums, difficult to track exactly, which maybe we'll come um, back to. But they would really like to see a kind of return to some policy ambition and some policy ambition which thinks about the agenda as a whole and its interaction with other kinds of spaces rather than, as you sort of suggested, they're continuing with the narrow focus on CRSV or something that we see in in other aspects of the agenda or of the UK's version of the agenda, which is some excellent um, investment, but without a kind of coherent approach. So individual projects or in particular years, there'll be something which is uh, exciting and and innovative, but there isn't necessarily a sense that that links up with the systematic approach to the agenda. And in particular, a systematic approach that is grounded in the human rights framework and speaks to a broader gender equality platform. So one that involves uh, CEDAW and then involves thinking about those spaces like sexual and reproductive uh, uh, justice that go beyond the conflict zone uh, narrowly conceived. So some of what we tried to suggest concretely and I hope we'll see are things like an integration with climate change policy 
one of our very striking findings about the first four national action plans is that there isn't a single reference to climate change in any of them. We expect that, that will change. I think it's hard for a nap in, in 2023 uh, to not mention climate change, especially from a champion state. But that's been one dimension in which the UK has lagged. Something like the arms trade treaty and non-proliferation issues, I think, is another dimension which goes back to anti-militarist roots, to thinking seriously about a feminist peace project rather than narrower uh, protection measures, and would really like to see some of that. Again, in the national action plans that exist, the first four, there are very few, if any, references to what we think of as big arms, in contrast to the usual focus on small arms and light weapons, by which we mean issues like non-proliferation, arms control, export regimes. You know, we could again have a whole podcast on the situation in, in Yemen and the Saudi-led coalition and what kind of gender impacts that has and how that disappears somewhat um, or entirely from UK WPS uh, uh, policy. So some synergies with the human rights framework, um, I think also to go back to the, the question you posed earlier about what are NAPs for and what NAPs are, are good for, it would be great to see some more conscious synergies with other WPS champion states. One of the things that happens with NAPs is everything can become quite localized for understandable reasons to your particular departments, the bureaucratic politics that might exist between a development agency and the foreign office and, and so on. But there are enough WPS champion states that they could be working together a lot more effectively and thinking about issues like duplication, whether in country focus, you know, we see this rush to, to, to fund projects in certain kinds of conflict spaces or on thematic kind of grounds, right? Do we need all of these countries funding more or less the same kind of projects on sexual violence or can there be a bit more differentiation, perhaps use of, of uh, established expertise and, and points of strength there? Thanks, Paul. Uh, the last comment on coordination with other WPS champion countries, I think, is an important one, and I think definitely something that is not happening at the minute. And we saw that play out last year again around preventing sexual violence in the Preventing Sexual Violence Initiative, and when there was that ambition to have a convention on ending CRSV, while at the same time, for example, Pramila Patton's office was working on this framework on. Uh, CRSV and there had been no coordination between both offices or teams. So this then brings me to domestication and we've had a lot of conversation about domestication. GAPS has advocated for domestication for the National Action Plan for I've lost count how many years so in terms of domestic implementation it's been indicated that the new NAP will have an increased domestic lens as well as a commitment to greater policy coherence is this far enough I mean just to set the scene a little bit so every one of the past UK NAPs has been outward facing so it's had some kind of language to the effect that the focus of the NAP is on foreign defense and development policy and not on the UK's domestic security situation 
Um, and UK civil society organisations, including GAPS, have been pushing for the government to apply the principles of women, peace and security to its domestic policy agenda. But this has never happened. Um, but over the past year, during the consultation process that we've all been involved in around the fifth NAP, um, the officials running the process have for the first time really seemed to take seriously um, this idea of domestic implementation as something that they might actually take action on. So in terms of what we can expect from the NAP and whether it'll go far enough, I think the answer probably is that it won't go as far as civil society would like to see. Um, and that's because there's a considerable political mismatch between the kind of human rights based ethos of women, peace and security and the current government's domestic policy agenda. And you can see that in relation to some of the things that we called for in the report. So. For example, thinking about women fleeing conflict, conflict situations and coming to the UK, we called for the government to open up safe and legal routes for asylum seekers to come here. Um, and obviously, meanwhile, the government has a policy of reducing net migration, which has included concerted efforts to effectively shut down those safe and legal routes, including things like deporting asylum, seek asylum seekers before they've exhausted their right to appeal, or deporting people to Rwanda to receive asylum there instead of in the UK. Um, and the government is planning to repeal the Human Rights Act, um, which is partly so that it can get rid of some of the legal constraints on it pursuing these immigration policies. So I think um, clearly it's at odds with the human rights focus of women, peace and security, and I wouldn't expect very much progress on that particular issue. Um, we also called for several things in relation to gender-based violence in the UK. Um, including a statutory guarantee of funding for services for survivors, so including um, gender-specific and trans-inclusive services for women and men and specialist services for migrant women, for women of colour and LGBTQI survivors. And um, we also wanted particular measures to ensure that survivors who are undocumented can access support services without a risk of being deported. Um, and I think what we're probably more likely to see in the NAP is a restatement of existing government policies around violence against women and girls, which in the context of austerity over the past 13 years has been treated very much as a law and order agenda. There's been a big focus on increasing sentences for perpetrators, for example, while the funding that actually helps to meet the material needs of survivors and help them get out of abusive situations has been stripped away. Thanks, Hannah. We, um, again, we've seen this again last year with when we had the PSVI conference and we were talking and they were talking about ending CRSV and SGB, SGBV and while at the same time pushing horrific legislation in terms of those that uh, come and claim, claim asylum and that includes victims of or survivors of SGBV and it was a complete undermining of their what they were talking about on stage and sisters um sorry women for refugee women were having a parallel campaign at the same time um calling out the uk government on this hypocrisy um and again you know with the borders legislation the small boats legislation we think about afghanistan
So we've just heard from Hannah and Paul on the recommendations and reflections on the UK's approach to women, peace and security. GAPS recently attended the launch of the UK's fifth national action plan, where civil society, along with other representatives from across government, were present. I want to tell you about the government's next steps to tackle one of the most uh, pressing global challenges. The fact that conflict and its effects and sadly, I think we all know this to be true. The fact that it disproportionately affects women and girls is something that we have to address. The new NAP will run from 2023 to 2027 and it will outline 12 focus countries. It includes for the first time some reference to the domestic implementation of women, peace and security and it has an improved monitoring and evaluation framework. However, as suspected, there is no dedicated budget. At the launch of the event, there were some positive reflections on the role of civil society organisations, specifically the recognition of them as being key strategic partners in the National Action Plan, as well as specific sections dedicated to domestic implementation. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Nikki Gnatou. I work for ActionAid UK with my colleague here. Hi, I'm Nafisa Goodall. Well, one thing that we've been working on um, most recently, and, and Nikki can talk to this as well, is that we're really pleased to see the recognition of women's rights organisations and women-led organisations as strategic partners and, and ensuring that that is part and parcel of the NAP. I'm also, yeah, definitely very much around um, how we work with women's rights organisations and led organisations specifically to, to address... Um, the needs that, that they may have at um, and, and raise awareness in that. And I think what links to that, not to repeat what Nafisa already shared, is also the increase and, and discussions around domestication of the NAP. Um, I think it's really positive to see that there. And, and really what we need to see is that policy coherence between what we talk about, you know, when we talk about the, the new NAP, it's also how does that link in with other things such as the girl, women's and girls strategy um, that the UK government is now going to be implementing as well. I'm Claudia Craig. I'm from the International Rescue Committee. I'm really pleased to see what I think is the first mention of women-led organisations and women's rights organisations and a bit more of a recognition of the partnership role that they play and seeing them as experts in their own right. Um, I would like to see a little bit more focus on how the funding is actually going to get to those organisations. Um, still a little bit light on the detail, but baby steps. Okay, my name is Patricia Leslie Mooney and I'm the chairperson of Training for Women's Network in Northern Ireland. Well, um, we were delighted to be invited here first of all this morning and probably representing Northern Ireland, but also to see Northern Ireland mentioned in the action plan itself. We would have liked to have seen some other concrete actions, but obviously the two that stood out was the one on the celebration of the Good Friday Agreement 25 years and the other one was in the strategy uh, on violence against women and girls. Hi, I'm Anna. I work at Women for Women International and also co-chair the GAPS Policy Working Group. Um, really excited also to, say, to see that within the indicators of the NAP, the Beyond Consultations tool is mentioned, which is a tool developed by GAPS and its partners that um, sets out actionable ways decision makers to mean, meaningfully consult with women's rights organisations and the civil society sector. 
whilst this net was development was developed in consultation with the civil society sector and with women's rights organizations another key action will be for that consultation to be maintained and sustained across the implementation of the nap However, some key limitations highlighted again were the challenges around funding and there being no dedicated budget for the National Action Plan. As we've spoken today, I think the funding element is, is a huge grey area um, and we know that um, unless you put money behind something that the implementation will be largely hindered and we don't want to be in a position five years time where the commitments that have been made were all words and, and no action. Yes, absolutely. Funding is key and I guess also what is quite new I guess in this stat is the fact that there is now suggested um, indicators and that is positive to see but I think what is still missing is really understanding how that's going to be taken for what the activities are to show that so yes funding and how is that going to be done definitely needed. I think the biggest challenge in implementing this is going to be the lack of funding. Um, I think that you can really see how the UK um, aid cuts are having a significant impact across the UK's foreign and development policy objectives and I really struggle to see how they're going to meet even some of the great parts of this plan without increasing the amount of funding that they're allocating. I think the biggest challenge is that, that the UK recognise that there is an issue in Northern Ireland first of all and then they need to, to consult with the grassroots in Northern Ireland to actually see what the issues are and then how do they monitor that? How can they see the change and the difference? And so I think there could be some quick wins for, for the UK uh, as far as the action plan is concerned. But I think just to echo the speakers, the most important thing will be funding. Um, so just really want to echo what's come from the, the, those on the panel today that to implement and to bring the commitments in the SNAP into action, it needs to be funded, and that's long-term core, flexible funding in partnership with women's rights organisations, which is hopefully um, a new development in the new NAP, is active, meaningful part participation and partnerships with women's rights organisations, but for those partnerships to be long-term, um, funding has to go alongside it. As we've heard, funding is still a significant issue in implementing the Women, Peace and Security NAP. So let's turn back to hear from Paul and Hannah on what their research can tell us about the UK's approach to funding women, peace and security. Your report talks a bit about spending and you have some recommendations and we see that you've tried to track women, peace and security spending over the last 15 years and that's been very difficult, not surprised. Um, the UK National Action Plan has never had a dedicated budget. I don't think, and, may, and correct me if I'm wrong, if most national action plans have dedicated budgets, I think some national action plans globally have pooled funding. I can, I'm thinking of Jordan, for example, it's always hailed as like a positive example of pooled funding for their NAP. But in your research, you've had to turn to alternative forms of data to try to understand where money is being spent. Firstly, can you tell me why it's important to understand where this money is being spent? 
and why the lack of data on spending means what that means for implementation of the national action plan yeah i mean i tend to think about this very much in terms of um, the relationship between counting and accountability right so we can't really have independent critical scrutiny of what is good and what is bad about uk wps without a much clearer understanding of where the money is going and in particular to get a finer grasp of within a pot that might have some kind of gender mainstreamed element which sounds extremely positive if that's not attached to specific activities that can be monitored or understood from the outside then it becomes very hard to tell what is the true size of the of the footprint so i'll give you one kind of example of a way in which that can matter which has to do with the recent revelations of forced abortion carried out by the Nigerian government in its internal counterinsurgency work, which was reported by um, Reuters at the end of at the end of last year, and where we're looking at something around ten thousand forced abortions that have been uh, uncovered and estimated by by Reuters. Now, the UK has been an extensive supporter of the Nigerian military. Uh, as documented in some of the summary documents that we looked at from the Conflict Stability and Security Fund. Um, and some of that has explicit gender focus written into it. So some portion of £30 million that was given between 2019 and 2021 went towards supporting conflict-affected women. But from the summary that we have, I couldn't tell you how much of that £30 million. I couldn't tell you which women in which areas and whether there was any intersection with this policy that has recently been revealed there was also some part of about 760,000 pounds in 2018 and 19 which went specifically for a gender advisor in the national security architecture of Nigeria to support WPS work so what was the impact of that support of that funded post can we think about maybe constructive activity that was undertaken there, which failed in this particular case? Um, was it a facade? How do we get at a grasping of what the UK's potential complicity is in some of these practices? Or ways in which the UK has helped avert many worse um, practices, right? It could actually be a very positive story in terms of UK influence. And a lot of what we see, I think, with the UK's international role is that as a partner to various national militaries, particularly in the wake of the, of the war on terror, there's quite a large opportunity to influence practices, to make sure that there are proper reporting mechanisms, to undertake protection measures, and so on, but also a real risk uh, around complicity and not reporting where that's the case. So... That's one of the ways in which having a better grasp of where the money's going and what it's for can help us advance, you know, as constructive friends uh, to the UK government uh, in making sure that the WPS work that it does is the best that it can be. Thanks, Paul. And yeah, I mean, it seems like it's probably in their best interests to be quite transparent about spending. I mean, 
I think we would like to see that. You know, I think it also then would also alleviate fears about being co-opted and, and gender just being used as a sort of cover for some other work that might be more of an interest to departments within the government. Um, and Hannah, what has this analysis shown you about the history of WPS spending? Um, so our research drew some tentative conclusions about where the money is being spent. Um, so, for example, our analysis of um, the spending that is reported in the NAPs themselves and in the annual reports to Parliament that the government makes suggests that around 40% of women peace and security projects have gender-based violence as their primary focus, followed by 29% that are seeking the meaningful participation of women, and then um, followed up by 13% have a more kind of cross-cutting focus. So you can see that that's in line with um, the kind of what we've already discussed and the common critique of UK women, peace and security, which is that it tends to focus on gender-based violence, sometimes at the expense of other issues. Um, but obviously there's a big caveat around those figures because we don't know how representative what goes into those reports is of you know, of what's actually being spent. And clearly the purpose of the reports is to kind of really showcase and make the government look good. Um, so we don't know. Yeah, we just don't know really how that maps onto what's really being spent. Um, but we also looked at um, programme summaries that Paul mentioned from the Conflict Stability and Security Fund, which is the government's biggest pot of money for work on conflict. And those summaries showed that references to gender and women have actually increased significantly over the past five years. Um, and the spending in this area also appears to be increasing, but it's still really low, about 1.3% of total spending from that um, pot of money. Um, so I think the overall lesson really is that the lack of a proper tracking system, like we've said, just makes it really difficult to tell what's being spent on which thematic issues and where. Um, and on top of that, we don't really know what the impact of all that spending has been. So putting in place a tracking system would be quite a significant challenge i think for such a big bureaucracy so in terms of the new national action plan would you say that what would be your key recommendations in terms of financing or uh, in terms of resources funding resources i mean i think at the very minimum as part of the the monitoring framework we need to see a common system for labeling and flagging the spend across these different pools, whether it's the Conflict Stability Security Fund, whether it's the new um, stability uh, office, whether it's coming through something like the Preventing Sexual Violence Initiative, or whether it's coming more through the National Action Plan. And one of the things that we haven't really touched on is that, that those two things have had kind of separate existences, that PSVI, traditionally located uh, in, in the Foreign Office, is related to, but hasn't always been clearly subordinated within the National Action Plan. So even at that level, there are these contradictions and, and questions about how different strands of the UK's policy um, framework relate to each other. So certainly in the interests of, of monitoring some kind of common flagging system so that from the outside, we can understand more. Although it's very often the case that if you speak to people inside the system, they don't have a clear idea either. Um, and partly in the foreign office, because of the turnover of, of staff, people may not have been on the desk for more than a couple of months or six months. So, you know, that's part of part of what we need to, to get to. It's been a consistent 
demand of civil society that we have dedicated multi-year WPS funding streams. And I think that's something that we would echo very strongly um, as well. What exactly that looks like and how to get over some of the internal bureaucratic hurdles, again, depending on the departmental logic, it becomes quite wonky, the different ways that the Foreign Office um, funds things compared to how maybe DFID, as was the Department for International Development, uh, used to. I think we just need to see an effort at policy coherence there um, that's well-resourced and supported. Thank you. Um, thank you both so much for joining us to launch the Mind the Gaps podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today and learn about your research. Details of Hannah, Paul and Ashling's work can be found in the show description along with a link to their publication, The Future of the UK's Women, Peace and Security Policy. Thank you so much for listening to Mind the Gaps, a women, peace and security podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode and hope you listen to our next episode, which will be released in two weeks time. If you found the episode interesting, please do share with your colleagues and networks and feel free to subscribe and review the podcast on whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at info uk.org. You can find out more about GAPS' work and our future plans on our Twitter at GAPS underscore network and by signing up to our monthly newsletter on our website. This podcast is made through the support of the Netherlands Ministry of Foreign Affairs through their funding of the Leap for Peace Consortium, which GAPS is a member of. The podcast is hosted by Eva Tabasum and is written, produced and edited by Florence Waller-Carr and supported by the GAPS team. Our thanks also to Andrew O'Connor at Safer World for the technical support and to Jimena Duran at NAMD, who are the consortium lead for Leap for Peace. We look forward to our next episode and to you joining us then.